Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris, and it's a great privilege to be bringing you God's Word today. If you have your Bible, please open up to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20 as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And here is the word of the Lord. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever had one of those moments uh, where something happened to you and it almost like, you know, was so shocking it kind of burned itself in your memory? Uh, I had one of those moments uh, early on as a young Christian. I, the Lord had you know, brought me back to himself after a few years of uh, rebelling and running away from him. And I was attending at the time a Korean church and uh, felt the burden that uh, the Lord was calling me to serve in some way. And, you know, just about any church you're a part of, there's always a need in children's ministry. Uh, so that was one of my first opportunities to serve the church but uh, we were having, you know, a little children's message, and they had just hired a new kind of children's pastor. He was giving a little message before we broke out into Sunday school groups, and he asked the kids a question. He said, how does someone become righteous? And his answer he gave was, you have to read the Bible and pray a lot. And uh, hopefully you, like I was at that time and still am, were utterly shocked at that answer. Like, it was so shocking, I, I didn't even know what to do or say in the moment, and just went off to my Sunday school class, and then right after, I found one of the other pastors and pulled him aside and shared with him what happened, and I was like, that's not what the Bible says about how someone becomes righteous. He said, yeah, Chris, you know, what that guy did is uh, he gave a very culturally Korean way of understanding the gospel. That is that, yeah, yeah, you know, God loves us and saves us, but... You know, if we really want God to love us more, uh, if we really want God to bless us, we, we got to suffer really hard for him. We got to be extremely disciplined. Got to read your Bible and pray a lot to earn more of God's favor in your life. And I tell you all this, uh, not because I'm trying to pick on one culture or one church necessarily, but I want to show that every culture and every people has a version of this. Anyone who's been exposed to the gospel uh, will fight the battle at some point in their life of finding their religious heart pushing back against the grace of God. But one of the ways that sin seeps, seeks to uh, deform us away from the image of Christ is to actually cause us to think of ways we need to try to earn God's love instead of recognizing God's gracious love already shown to us in Christ. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know that God's word has a very different answer to the question, how does someone become righteous? And that's what I want us to look at today. The key truth is that God's law reveals the depths of our sin and bears witness to our need for justification in Christ alone. And we're going to be looking at that in two different ways. As you saw in the text, it refers a lot to the law. And so we're going to see first what the law doesn't do and what the law does do. So first up, what the law doesn't do. 
Here, Paul, he's addressing uh, the Jews here in the church in Rome. And if you remember, right, this is a church that's a mixture of people, of Jews and Gentiles from all different backgrounds. And, you know, there had been some conflict because a lot of these Gentiles are coming from deep pagan, you know, very rebellious backgrounds, hearing the grace of God, coming to saving faith. And the Jews, right, they, they had the Old Testament, they had God's law, right? But then Jesus comes and they hear the gospel and they're drawn together now in one body. But we can see here that some of the Jews are struggling with a sense of, you know, why are these people let in? What did these people do to deserve to be here? We've had the law our whole lives. We've been obedient to the law our whole lives, right? We are deserving to be in the room. We are deserving to receive the blessings of God. And so Paul actually, he's been, he's been taking the Jews to task, uh, you know, bit by bit here, all the way through chapter 2 and here halfway through chapter 3. He's actually spent more time addressing the Jews and their problems of, self-righteousness than he did spend on addressing the outside pagan world. And that's an important lesson for us to recognize that God's word right, is addressing primarily God's people. And it recognizes that we are still very much in need of the gospel to change our lives. And so Paul in verse 19, right, he says the same thing. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Right? All right, if you're God's people and you have the law, well, guess what? You know, all those uh, seven verses we read last week about just how broken and sinful and unrighteous we are, you know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, sin city or something out there. No, God is addressing you, his people. He's trying to reveal just how sinful you are. So he's saying, look, the law doesn't primarily address the world out there. It does address it in many ways, but it's primarily addressing the problems of the heart of God's people. And here it says also, right, that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So one of the first things Paul is showing us is that the law doesn't give God's people a platform on which uh, to boast or to be prideful in our own obedience and our own righteousness. And, you know, if we spend a moment thinking about this, we may think, well, I'm not boasting in my obedience all that often. And yet Paul is getting at something that can often be hidden to our own eyes, right? As the example I gave of the Korean church earlier, it's sometimes easier to see this in others than in ourselves, right? When Jesus says, you know, beware of pointing out the splinter in your, your brother or sister's eye when you have a plank in your own, he's talking to a similar issue here, that sin and especially self-righteousness can blind us to our continual need for God's grace to transform our hearts and our lives. And so first off, Paul is telling us, like, the law does not give us a place to boast from. The law of God, the Word of God, is not a, an instruction manual on how to be a better person. Now, does the Word of God instruct us on how to live godly lives once we've been transformed by the grace of God more and more into the image of Christ? Yes, right? But the Word of God is not a 12-step program of if you do these 10 things, right, then you will be a righteous person. Then you will be good with God. Now, the relationship must start, right, from grace. We are already so in debt because of sin that we cannot work our way 
out of it to become righteous. So Paul here is pointing out to the Jews, hey, you've been boasting about having the law in your lives, and yet it's not doing the thing you think it's doing. The law does not, just having the law does not automatically make you a righteous person. Or to translate that into modern parlance, just because, you know, you have a Bible in your home, just because you post uh, Bible verses on billboards everywhere, it does not automatically transform uh, you or your family or your culture into a righteous and godly culture. This is very humbling (laughs) to recognize that uh, we cannot... Uh, you know, manipulate our own culture into being a righteous one, that that has to be a work of God alone, that we are insufficient and unrighteous in our own abilities, that we cannot make it happen. The other thing Paul is saying is, look, actually, no one will be justified by works of the law. Or maybe to translate that in a slightly different way here, obeying the law does not make God love you. And one of the ways that uh, our own culture can sometimes make this hard for us to fully grasp is that we are such a commodified culture, right? We live in a culture deeply influenced by, you know, capitalism and a market economy. I'm not saying any of that is bad inherently, but it affects us in that, you know, your average uh, experience in day-to-day life is you go to work, you earn a paycheck by your work, Right? Our relationships in a lot of the world are based on the work you do, what you have earned. And so when the grace of God comes in our life to say, uh, you can't earn it, <laughs> actually, the wages that you have earned is from sin and it deserves death, right? then that, is, that can butt right up against our own religious tendencies, our hard hearts to the grace of God. And we end up living this out, whether we realize it or not. We can communicate even to others a a functional self-righteousness by the way we live our lives. And so Paul is telling us here, look, your obedience to the law is not what earns you the love of God. And ultimately what he's saying is when we treat the word of God uh, as a 12-step program to earn God's love, to become a righteous person on our own, we're really no better than the pagans. I mean, if you study any pagan religion, the whole idea is, you know, if you make these sacrifices and attend these festivals, you know, and do these five things, then you are appeasing the gods, right, little g. (laughs) You are uh, making the gods happy with you. You make sure that Zeus won't strike you down with a lightning bolt. So Paul is saying, man, like, what good is that kind of self-righteousness if it's essentially the same kind of righteousness that pagans practice? It's no good at all. We need a righteousness that is actually alien to us, foreign from us, one that we could not get on our own. So let me ask you this question to really bring this into our own lives. Where are you trying to earn God's love through your obedience? Where are you trying to earn God's love through your obedience? You know, maybe some of you kind of identify with the story I told in the beginning, uh, a sense of, you know, I need to earn God's love uh, by doing penance for my sins, for experiencing suffering, right? That, oh, when, when I'm suffering, well, you know, it's just like, it's, it's me kind of paying off my debt in a way. 
There's a way that we can sometimes make ourselves feel so guilty for our sins and our level of guilt and our level of sorrow over that is a way of trying to earn God's grace back in our lives to make it right. Right, and there should be a godly sorrow over sin, but right as Thessalonians tells us, so well, there is a type of sorrow, right, that actually leads to godly repentance and ultimate joy in what Christ has done for us. Right, that even in your repentance, even in your sorrow over your sin, right, that is not earning your rightness with God. Now, once again, it's actually bringing us back to that grace over and over again. Or maybe it's some things in our culture uh, that can be hard to identify, things that we might actually be resting on for a sense of rightness with God uh, that we might not even call that automatically. Have you ever said or heard someone use the phrase, I don't know how someone can call themselves a Christian and vote a certain way? I don't know how someone can call themselves a Christian and not homeschool their kids, or not send them to Christian school, or not send them to public school. I don't know how someone can call themselves a Christian and refuse to get vaccinated, or get vaccinated in the first place. I don't know how someone can call themselves a Christian and let their kids run around like that. I don't know how someone can call themselves a Christian and struggle with those kinds of temptations. There's so many ways, and the list goes on and on, that we can end up actually putting ourselves in the place of God as the one who determines what is truly right and wrong. What is the righteous standard that God wants for us? It's interesting here that we tend to make our own level of sanctification really the standard for holiness in our communities. And really what Paul is saying is, no, 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 look, there's a standard of holiness way beyond anything you can achieve. And that's why the law cannot make you right with God. Obedience to the law cannot make you right with God. Someone else has to come and make that relationship right. What Paul is doing is he's seeing the hard hearts of many of the Jewish people in the community. And he's trying to break down those hard hearts. I watched a video recently of a guy, I think he was like in India, who breaks apart concrete walls from buildings that have been destroyed or collapsed. And instead of like, you know, just uh, running it over with a bulldozer or something like that, uh, he very strategically, you know, found these very specific spots on a concrete wall and drilled holes and placed bars in them and then just very lightly kind of tapped them in with a hammer. And it was amazing to see how the strategic places he put those holes and those bars totally caused these massive concrete walls to collapse. And that's what God is trying to communicate through the Holy Spirit, writing through Paul. He's trying to, to find those specific parts in our hard hearts, in our lives, that need to be drilled through, that need to come down. That this problem of self-righteousness is one that is not easily uh, seen with our own eyes. And it's one that we can become very defensive about. Look at what John Calvin says here about how uh, Paul is trying to address the Jews and their hard hearts. He says this, Leaving the Gentiles, he distinctly addresses his words to the Jews, for he had a much more difficult work in subduing them, because they, 
though no less destitute of true righteousness than the Gentiles, yet covered themselves with the cloak of God's covenant, as though it was a sufficient holiness to them to have been separated from the rest of the world by the election of God. And he indeed mentions those evasions, which he well understood the Jews were ready to bring forward. For whatever applied to the Gentiles, as though they were exempt from the common condition of men, Paul here anticipates them and, throw, and shows from what Scripture declares that they were not only blended with the multitude, but that condemnation was peculiarly denounced on them. Paul here is saying this, like the Jews saying, well, we're the covenant people of God. You know, God called us out from the rest of the nations of the world to be his people. Paul's saying, yeah, that's true, right? But God still needs to, to take away your sins, to cover them over with a righteousness you don't have. That, that That's not enough, right? Just to be formed in a community, but the community actually has to be transformed inside out. Paul is saying here something radical about the grace of God, and that grace is truly a gift from God to the undeserving, and that the Jews are just as much undeserving of God's grace as those Gentiles are in the pagan world. He's saying, look, if there's one thing that should unify you, it's actually your utter brokenness together. It's that you're all are a mess, and you're in this mess together, and God is trying to save you all. The grace of God is just as much to the most profligate sinner as it is to those who have lived a relatively moral life. Right? All are in need of the saving grace of God. So we have to ask the question, if the obedience to the law does not justify us and make us right with God, then what does the law do? Well, that's our second point, what the law does do for us. First... It tells us to be humble, or a little more strongly, as Paul says, right, so that every mouth may be stopped, or another translation, every mouth may be shut. Paul is telling us, shut your mouth. If you're too busy making excuses for your sin, you're not going to hear what the Word of God truly has to say. You know, when confronted with your sin, when confronted with self-righteousness, when confronted with brokenness in the world, if the first thing you do is try to justify why all that's okay, then you realize what you were basing your justification on, what your righteousness is truly settled on. So Paul is saying, look, actually the righteousness of God, which is so much far beyond anything we could attain to, should cause us to be humble, to quiet down, to shut our mouths, and this is for all people. Every mouth may be stopped. The whole world will be held accountable to God. Not just those people out there, you know, not just Sin City, but the people in churches, the people in communities of faith, all will be held accountable to God. We saw this in our Revelation series. Revelation 20, right? All are raised and face that judgment of God. And yet, right, the law doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us necessarily into despair. The second part, that thing that Paul wants us to see, is that the law is actually meant, right, not to justify us, but to give us knowledge of sin. Where the law is meant to reveal the depth of our sin and our need for a Redeemer. All right, we call the gospel the good news of Jesus, right? The good news of salvation. 
But there can't be good news unless there's some bad news. Right? The bad news is what the law teaches us, that we are sinners, utterly depraved, utterly broken. Right? I mean, think about it. If the Bible is a self-help book, it's like the worst self-help book in the world. I mean, its main message is you cannot help yourself. Right? You are a rebel to God, and you come, you are descended from a history, a family of rebels going all the way back to Adam. Right? That all of human history is broken and cannot fix themselves, cannot obey their way into God's love. And the Bible's message is the only way you can make it right is for God himself to come down and make it right for you. And it's, it's an anti-self-help book. It's an anti-obeying your way into God's love book. The law ultimately reveals just how bad we are and just how needy we are for a Redeemer. This is why we do a confession of sin every week, you know, if you haven't noticed. Uh, it's not because, you know, we want to guilt trip you all. Uh, it's not that, you know, we think you in particular are the worst sinners ever, but it's actually because we all know, myself included, that it's so easy for our hearts to forget just how sinful we truly are. It's so easy for me to go through my week and get frustrated at all the other things going on in the world, all the people around me, and place myself up as some righteous judge who, if I was just in charge, I could fix it all and make it right. That's utter nonsense. It's foolishness. I am just as broken, and I would only contribute to the brokenness of the world if it were not for the grace of God. This is why we need the gospel daily. You know, Paul is laying out the gospel message, and he's starting here with the wrath of God and our utter sin. Right? It's not just something for missions for those people out there. No, it's something that we need to hear every single day as we grow in our knowledge and in our, in our holiness and our sanctification through the grace of God. Christians should be the first and most willing to confess their sins when confronted. You know, that's a hard thing to, to live out, right? That when someone confronts you with sin, to not immediately get defensive. But it's really at the heart of what Paul's getting at here and what Jesus says in Luke 5.31, right? He's talking about uh, reaching out to the tax collectors and the Pharisees criticize them for it. And he says, look, those who are well have no need of a physician. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he's saying, I need people who are, whose hearts are broken by sin Right, from the conviction of the Holy Spirit in them to be brought into the grace of God. Right, those people who need the gospel, who feel their need daily. Right, this is what truly transforms a heart and a community. So let me ask you this question. How has the Word of God recently revealed areas of your life that still fall far short of the glory of God? You know, if we read the Word and it's only uh, an encouragement to how great we're doing, and it never confronts areas of our life that still need to change, then our understanding of the word is twisted and wrong. And that's what Paul is getting at to the Jews, and he wants us to hear as well. And there are many ways we could explore that, but let's examine how actually the Bible talks about even our good works fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, like dirty undergarments, is a more literal translation. 
that, that's our righteous acts, our good works, our obedient works, our filthy and dirty before the Lord. But that's just how badly sin has deformed us and ruined us. As Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our sins. You know, we're not alive, but kind of like drowning and we need a little help. No, we are like dead at the bottom of the ocean and need to be completely brought back and given new life. Tim Keller is really helpful in uh, pointing out our self-righteous tendencies, uh, especially in his book, Prodigal God, where he says this, Here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. Referring there to the story of the prodigal son. Jesus here is showing us, right, that we have a tendency to self-justify, to make ourselves self-righteous, to see ourselves as morally superior, and therefore put ourselves in the place of God, dictating what is right and wrong, what is righteous and unrighteous. This is what causes defensive attitudes when we're confronted with our own sin. And these things are just as detrimental to our spiritual health as rampant immorality. Jesus' point is that the older brother who refuses to show grace to his younger brother, who is just working to earn his father's love, is just as broken in need of grace as the younger brother who's run off and spent the money, you know, living a wild life. And so the thing I want us to see here is that kind of self-righteousness, that kind of defensiveness ultimately affects our witness to the world. Right? If our understanding of the word is a, is a confirmation of our righteousness instead of a clear statement of our condemnation of our sin, then we, we're no longer a city on a hill shining a light out into the world. Now, we're a city with our gates barred shut. Right? We are a city that does not invite sinners in, but shoes them away. They're going to ruin our righteousness. Get out of here. And that's not what Jesus wants for his people. And Paul is calling the Jews in the Roman church to task because he's saying, look, you are separating yourselves from the unity of your brokenness and your unity in the grace of God through this self-righteousness. And it's ultimately harming your witness to those outside the church. They don't feel welcome to come in when they see uh, standards being set apart from the Word of God. When they see the Word of God as a a 12-step program to make it right instead of the grace of God shown to us through the atoning work of Jesus. What we ultimately see is that we want to point lost sinners to the righteousness of Christ because that's the only thing that can save them as well as us. So let me ask you this question as we begin to wrap up. What was the law of God never intended to do? And what is its purpose? The law was never meant to justify us in our own self-righteousness, but instead to reveal our brokenness and our need for justification that has to come from elsewhere. So, you know, if obedience to the law is therefore not the basis of God's love for us, 
and what is? Well, to give you a little preview of what's coming next week, let's read down here uh, chapter 3 of Romans, verses 21 through 24, which says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is leading the readers there in the Roman church. He's leading us to this point of saying, look, you cannot be righteous on your own, even with wonderful obedience to God's word. You need the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, right? That that is what we put our faith and our trust and our hope in, something outside of ourselves, something that cannot be changed or taken away. And so then if our obedience doesn't earn that, then we see our obedience now becomes a joyful response to the great love for us already on display in the atoning work of Christ. Our righteousness is now based on what Jesus has done and not on what we've done. So we see that Romans 3, 19 through 20 teaches us that our obedience to the law does not earn God's love, but is a joyful response to his love for us in Christ. And that the word of God reveals the depth of our need for Christ's righteousness alone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, that we would not be here apart from your grace. Lord, that we would not be able to proclaim the goodness of your love for us apart from your grace. But Lord, you have been so good to ruin and broken sinners to people who are struggle with self-righteousness, myself included, those who would more easily scare people off with hard-heartedness than with compassion and tenderness. But Lord, you are so good that you continually work on our lives. Lord, that you open our eyes again and again to the gospel, to our need for you and for your all-sufficient grace in our life. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.